0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce our guest today. Brian Murray comes to us from New York. He is the president and CEO of HarperCollins. But even more fun for me, I just discovered as we were walking around campus that we actually are twins separated at birth. (laughs) Actually, almost really, we both were born in Cherry Hill, New Jersey go figure. We also, he lives in Summit, New Jersey. I grew up in Summit, New Jersey. We both worked at Booz Allen after we graduated from graduate school. And of course, we're both related to HarperCollins since I just have uh, two books that I've published with HarperCollins and he's the president's CEO. So uh, I I, I couldn't be more delighted to... um, it's a small t- world, t- right? Exactly, really small, small world. world. So it's a huge pleasure. And I figured that we would start out with you telling us a little bit about your career history because you know, we have lots of CEOs and entrepreneurs and venture capitalists come to speak to us, but we've never had a book publisher. And this is an incredibly important industry. Of course, most of us in this room are huge consumers of books and printed <laughs> material and now digital material. You know, it would be great to know how your career you know, evolved and where you end up where you are now.
1: Oh, great! Well, look. First of all, thanks for the opportunity. It's really great to come out here. It's my first time to Stanford, and we just had a very quick tour around the campus. So very impressive. I'm still uh, perspiring a little bit, but um, (laughs) but let me. You know, what I think is interesting about HarperCollins is I'm going to venture to guess that um, I may be the CEO of the probably the oldest company that you've probably ever had in here uh, in terms of entrepreneurial and engineering based. I mean, we're about two hundred years old. um, So. Maybe we're older than all of the other companies that have come in to see you. So I'll, I'll have an interesting story to talk about later. But um, I got my, my, my undergraduate degrees are in physics and electrical engineering. Uh, so I didn't start out as an English major. Um, and I didn't think I was going to be running a publishing company either. But um, I was, uh, you know, curious. I liked uh, math and science. I took, uh, you know, graduated, um, and then worked for four years, basically writing code. And then I went back to business school, and uh, got a degree. I was interested in both uh, technology and business. And uh, so I wound up working for four years, business school, and then Booz Allen um, working in New York in their media consulting practice uh, where I happened to work for three publishing companies in a row across 18 months. And um, so got to learn a little bit about the book publishing business. And my last client only after two years was HarperCollins, and I joined HarperCollins. So now it's been... A uh, little, little over fifteen years that well, I've been with HarperCollins. What kind of job
0: Collins. did you join, and how did you end up going from that to being the president?
1: Um, I joined uh, HarperCollins was the client of ours, so I was one of the you know the young kids on the project, and you remember what that's like. And um, a- after the, the you know the the three or four month project, uh, when our project of analysis and trying to figure out what to do with HarperCollins stopped, uh, they decided to hire two of us instead of doing another. Consulting engagement with Booz Allen, they decided to hire two people, and I was one of them and I, my first job, I think it was I was a director of finance, which I'd never taken an accounting class ever. Um, so there happened to be an opening and they put <laughs> me in that job and then I just uh, I kept moving from one role to another and uh, I would say just about every two to three years I was in a different role and I kept getting a little bit broader and broader a set of experiences, and um, the big change for me was when I went, I think it was 2001, there was an opportunity to go run our HarperCollins business in Australia New Zealand. And I'd had my my wife and I had our third child. He was six weeks old and we all got on the plane and flew to Sydney, and we'd never been there before, and it was the best job I ever had. Uh, So we we spent, uh, we had three and a half years there, and then I was asked to come back to New York. I said no. Then I was asked to come back again six months later, and I couldn't say no the second time. So I came back to New York. So I really moved around, usually on the business side. I'm, I am not, I'm not an editor, but uh, I work with a lot of very creative people. And so I kind of think I bridge both uh, you know, the business and strategy and, and uh, helping creative teams get the most out of what they can do. So,
0: so having been there at HarperCollins for 15 years, I'm going to guess the publishing industry has changed dramatically over that time. Can you paint us a picture? of what it looked like then and what's yeah. happened over that time?
1: Yeah, I can try. I mean, it is this industry is the book publishing industry. And again, we're not an educational publisher. We're what's called a trade publisher. That's a you know, consumer books. So Barnes and Noble and Amazon are our biggest customers. We, we're we not selling textbooks, uh, for example. But um, you know, when I started, it was back when Amazon was founded. I mean, if you go, Amazon's only 15, 16 years old, so it's hard to imagine. Uh, back then, that there weren't we weren't selling books online, and uh, and so at that time, Barnes and Noble and Borders, the superstore format was the really big was the big new innovation in retail and in book publishing. They were the big bad bullies at the time. Um, independent bookstores were all across the country. Uh, books were really not sold in Walmart. I mean, it was a very very different, more of a. Cottage uh, industry. Um, there had been a lot of consolidation, uh, so there were publishing companies now were owned by media and entertainment companies, whereas the generation before they were family-owned. So they had been the people who were running them had grown up when they were family companies and had a different sensibility. And now they were owned by large conglomerates, uh, often global, and there was you know there was a bit of a you know a bit of friction there. I would say. To now, where our businesses in the U.S., uh, 30% of our businesses are e-books, um, online sales of books you know, for us can be 20-25% of prints, um, and our new customers are now Apple and Google and um, you know and Barnes Noble and Noble and Amazon are also making that transition. So, a fundamentally different business now. Um, We're at the leading edge of technology and consumer devices. We're um, we're grappling with change. Our business model was underpinned by scale and logistics of physical goods. And now we're basically dealing with um, all of these new platforms and platform economics and everything that goes with that kind of business. So we're at a fascinating tipping point in our industry where a lot of the old rules maybe don't apply anymore, and we need to learn the new rules fast and then apply them. And so it's a very exciting time, but it's also a time of tremendous change. And, and in some corners of a big organization, you know, that can lead to opportunities, but also anxiety um, in a big company.
0: Can you paint us a little bit of a picture of the number of books that sure. you publish and how that fits into the you know global book industry yeah. because I think it's hard to understand the scale sure. and and even maybe if I had one more question on top of that, you know, what percentage of those books are big sellers, right? I mean, because we think of also about apps and people are producing a lot of apps and right. which ones are big sellers. But you know, within the book market, they are also blockbusters. So maybe the numbers, a little bit of stats.
1: Sure. Um, HarperCollins is the third largest uh, English language publisher. So we have operations in the U.S., Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, India. We have a small office in China. Um, So we cover all of those English language markets and we have teams, both creative teams, publishers, as well as sales, marketing and distribution in all those markets. So um, what's interesting, in the old days, our business was very much country-by-country based and now, with digital, it's really become language-based. So for those in the English language, we publish 3,000 new books per year. That's first editions, that's not a paperback of a second book, or I'm not counting an ebook separate from a print book. It's 3,000 new product launches a year, which is about 12 new product launches a day. It's unbelievable, the scale. Um, And so we have an unbelievable process that brings all of these books to market um, and in the most efficient way. We do it now in print as well as in digital and we have teams of people that are trying to position our authors' books in the best possible light, Um, whether it's working through B2B channels and working with the buyers of bricks and mortar bookstores and now going directly to social media sites, whether it's Facebook and Twitter. a tremendous amount of volume goes through, and what we do is a lot of our values. We own the copyright in the books, and books will sell. You know, good books will sell for decades, and so we build up this catalog. We have about fifty thousand. Our catalog print books is about fifty thousand unique works um, in the English language, um, and then now our ebook catalog is getting up to around forty thousand copies. So we are an intellectual property business. And um, you know we try to we try to sell bestsellers, but we also try to educate and inform. We have children's books. We have we try to have a book for everybody, um, and and we publish very widely: um, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, cookbooks, um, bestsellers, and literary books. So we never know where the big book is going to come from next year. We have to reinvent the revenues every year. Um, the majority of our revenues come from the new books. And um, you know, if you think about a consumer packaged goods company where they have you know selling soap or cereal, I mean that product doesn't change at all, and we do 12 new products a day. Um, so there's, there's not a lot of scientific experiment because every product is different. It's much more um, organic, got a lot of gut feel and a lot of collective wisdom that comes from the group of creative professionals that work on those books. So, all right, so we're the third largest and I mean, I've lost track of the number of books published per year because now we have self-publishing. We have, you know, there's probably millions of books published a year. I once, you know, it was a stat a couple of years ago that said 20 million Americans write a novel every year. So it's a shocking number of people that, that want to write a book. And I'm sure many of you know people or have written a book at one point in time. So, but we don't, you know, we're not in that self-publishing space right now where we are kind of curating and picking the books that we think we can make a difference with.
0: So I'm just curious, how many books does a book have to sell for you to think of it as successful? I mean, is it, is it <clears throat> I mean, just because, to get some sense of scale.
1: Yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. And there are so many ways to define success. Um, you know, when we do our business planning, a book is successful when it sells more than we expected it to sell. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be 10,000 copies. But if we bought a book and we thought that book was going to sell a million and it sells 100,000, it's unsuccessful. So it really has to do with our expectations when we take on a project. And we take on projects of all different sizes. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and then there's there's critical successes too. There's books that win Nobel prizes. Um, they're big successes as well, but for different reasons. Not so much for economic, more for for reputation, more for um, you know making a difference. You know there, there, there's a kind of a, a general genre of important books. You know books around policy, whether it's government or social policy. We don't expect them to ever be big bestsellers, but we like to think that we're um, kind of advancing the dialogue um, on those issues. And books are unique in a way to do that. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of short content out there, whether it's newspapers, magazines, blogging. But a book is a little different. It has that enduring value and, um, and they can really add to a conversation in a way that some other media forms can't.
0: So why should somebody... I mean, so many people I know are self-publishing because if they've got a platform, they write it, they can get it out there right away, they make more money on it. Right. Why should somebody go through a traditional publisher? I mean, I, I certainly know that I, the reasons I do, but I, I'm curious. We can compare notes afterwards. I know, afterwards, we can compare so. notes of why.
1: <laughs> I mean, look, there are, as I said, there's, there's millions and millions of people who write a book every year. There aren't enough kind of traditional publishers who could ever publish them all. So there are real reasons for people to self-publish. Um, the reasons to go with a publisher like HarperCollins is that you are tapping into, I think of HarperCollins or a publishing house like us as an expert network of professional publishing people. and. If you look at the, um, the, the people that we have in-house that are involved in publishing 12 new books per day, the feedback that we get from the marketplace is really astounding. And so we're able to adjust to the zeitgeist. We're able to adjust to what consumers want, whether it's price, whether it's product, um, you know, titles, the marketing. We are getting all of this feedback into an organization with thousands of people um, organized into creative teams. And that expertise, that tapping into that expert network, you can't do that as a self-published author. So you can have success, and many people do have success self-publishing. But what you get when you come to a big publisher is the expertise of what's working in the market now. And what we can do is help position that author's work to achieve its maximum success. And there's a lot of logistics that goes into that. There are a lot of connections that we can make um, to traditional media, new media, to all the buyers, to the librarians, where reviewers make a difference. It is, it is beyond what any one person could do. Um, so some people will say, some authors who, who are successful self-publishers say, oh, I can hire the editor, I can hire the marketing person. I mean, and that's absolutely true. But if you distill down you know each book, we probably have eighty dollars to $100,000 of professional time going into a book. You can't hire or tap that kind of expertise in one individual or two individuals. You're actually tapping into that kind of expertise by tapping into about 25 different professional departments in a publishing company. And, um, and that's unique. And that's not going to go away. But we're also, publishers are not very good at articulating that value. And, and media loves to write about the, the disruption and the disintermediation of traditional publishers, and that's a risk and a concern. We think about it a lot but there's a tremendous amount of value that a big publishing company brings to the process.
0: Yeah, well, I have found that from my experience. Um, Good. No, I know. I absolutely have. I mean, I can give a whole laundry list of, like, totally amazing uh, things that I've I've benefited from. One of the things that's always fascinated me is that people who are in the publishing industry, if you say that you're writing a book, the first thing they say is who's publishing it, Right. And I say, HarperCollins, and they go, oh, really? So, okay, so right. it's very nice. But people who are not in the publishing business don't even ask. They don't know. And one of the things that's always fascinated me is that publishers don't build a brand around books. Like people don't go to a bookstore and say, I'm going to buy a HarperCollins right. book. And I've always been fascinated that publishers don't do that. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. I mean, this is, um, I mean, it is, it's a great question. We always view the author as the brand and we are putting the author forward um, and trying to help them build their brand and their platform. Um, we can help them do that. The, the, uh, the publisher's name uh, does help, certainly when it comes to, maybe not with that consumer who's not in publishing, but when it comes to the reviewer, when it comes to the media, if you want to book, you know, if you want to get on uh, major media, or if you want to get reviewed in the newspaper, who's publishing it really matters. So our business traditionally has always been a B2B, a business-to-business uh, uh, g- kind of uh, channel. So we work with the buyers, we work with the reviewers, we will market directly to consumers, but we don't have that direct consumer relationship. Now that may change as we go forward. I mean the the, the digital world that's developing around us creates a lot of new opportunities opportunities for us to reconsider that traditional practice, and there's a lot of debate and discussion within the publishing industry about exactly that issue. There are a few brands, um, but you know, maybe uh, you know, in in certain genres, there are some brands. If people read a lot of fantasy, um, they might know a brand or two, a publishing brand. But by and large, um, the biggest publishing companies we have a lot of imprints, and those imprints are really creative teams. They are. We don't have a monolithic publishing process we have what we call imprints where you have a publisher and and then the creative team around them and we find that those small teams are where the best creative work takes place and so if you're going to organize that way they have to do the best job with each one of their imprints in order to make those connections with with media with reviewers and book buyers so it's a complicated issue and it may change in the future but for now we put the author out as the brand
0: You know, it's interesting, I always, as I've learned more about more about the publishing industry, think of publishers really as venture capitalists. You know, they are investing in these books, which are, you know, each little a little business. Can you talk a little bit about those parallels?
1: We are, we absolutely are the bankers of this creative industry. We take the risk. Um, a contract with an author is is, I think, a really elegant contract. the, The incentives for the publisher and the author are completely aligned in every way. And um, what we do as publishers is we have, uh, I mean we probably spend about $200 million a year signing authors every year. That's a lot of venture capital that goes into a cultural business. and. We, we try to pick the best, make the best bets that we can. We're, sometimes we don't even have a finished book. I mean, many times it's um, on an author's idea, it might be an outline. We are absolutely placing bets. Um, and you know, using our understanding of the marketplace um, and what's happening, what we think consumers are interested in, we're placing bets on authors that we think we can get behind. And as I said, we really, the real success for us is when we do more than we expected. Um, So we take those risks. We guarantee an author a certain amount of income so that they can write the book. They don't have to have a, a full-time job Uh, in theory when they work with a publishing company. We will finance them and they'll get payments as they hit milestones through the writing process. And then we take all the risk and inventory and marketing and we try to sell that book and then we share proceeds with the author. So we are the venture capitalists. I mean, when you think about the role we play, it's, it's the financing and I don't think that's going away in the digital world. It's the editorial, helping shape and package the book for the, for the best possible sales that you can get and the marketing to actually deliver it. Those three capabilities are fundamentally not going to change as we go forward. How we do them, that may change with all of the new marketing vehicles that are out there.
0: So let's drill down that a little bit. I love the, the metaphor of the publisher as venture capitalist. Um, we know that VCs get tons and tons of business plans every day, and we know that publishers get tons and tons of manuscripts every day, and and I also know that in the VC industry, they're out there trolling, looking for deals that are not this, you know, being mailed in. How are you finding these? Because I've gotten a little bit of a sense of how complicated this is to actually finding the authors that you want to work with.
1: Right. So we have about. Um in New York I would say we have about 120 editors and their job these are that they're focused on acquiring books and a typical editor Um, at a big publishing company might acquire 12 books a year. So kind of like one project a month that they're working on um, at at different points in time. And they are working it. I mean, they have relationships with literary agents, they have relationships with producers, they have, they might be involved in certain markets, whether it's politics or business, where they have a network um, (laughs) where they are trying to identify people who have a great story to tell, if they have an innovative idea that we think could be a book. Um, we're looking at all these different avenues. Now you, you, know, you see a lot of bloggers, a lot of bloggers turning into books. We published uh, one of the most successful ones, Ship My Dad Says, was a blog that we pulled out and turned into a book and became a television show. Um, we've done, we, uh, there was a, another one of the most successful one is Pioneer Woman. There's a woman, if you know her, she has a television show now. We've done two books or three books with her. And um, so we have people looking everywhere to try to identify the next big thing. I mean, talking about venture capital, um, we do it in that cultural sense and trying to find books that can um, really, really find a marketplace.
0: Yeah. My fun story is I met Mark Tauber, my publisher, on an airplane.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, right. and we
0: became fast friends, and uh, it took two years, but he then finally said, will you write a book? So. That's great. All right,
1: I'm glad it worked. Uh, yeah, here right. we you are, know, You right? meet him on airplanes. Uh, exactly, That's exactly. Right.
0: So um, what do you see as the biggest challenges slash opportunities? I mean, we teach our students that the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity. So you know, what are the problems slash opportunities that you see ahead?
1: Yeah, I, I subscribe to that same theory. I mean, anytime there's a lot of change, there's a lot of opportunity, and so trying to figure out, um, you know, where is the market going to go is is really important for us. Um, I think one of the the biggest like immediate challenge we have is is during this transition from print to digital. We you know we want to make sure that this digital world that's unfolding very quickly around us we want to make sure that we have the right sort of digital ecosystem for selling and marketing books. And so that means we want to have as many partners as possible to sell books through, we want to have as many marketing channels, um, and we want to have be able to offer to consumers the greatest possible choice in formats and price um, and in, in content that we can. So, if you go back three, four years ago, there was really only one major ebook player, for example, and now we have four, and I think we'll have six, um, you know, as time goes on. I, as I say, we'll have, you know, Apple came into the business, and um, Google is finally organizing around their MyPlay platform. There, there are going to be, I think, now, you know, four, five, or six major distribution channels and partners for us in the ebook world. So, building that. Making sure we have the right ecosystem for the future is one of the top, top issues. The second issue is, during this time of change, is how do we get the right capabilities, the right people, the right skills, and the right capabilities into the company? You know, Publishers have done some things the same ways for decades and decades. And as the business transitions to digital, there are so many new ways to do things. As I said, we have to rethink some of the old traditional rules. And you know we need to think about how do we market directly to consumers. We have to ask ourselves questions about the brand, should HarperCollins mean something, particularly in a world of a lot of self-publishing. Um, so trying to get the right people involved in those decisions, trying to challenge a very big organization of more than 3,000 people around the world to wrestle with these issues head on and to kind of anticipate where is the market going to be. There are the big, big challenges that we have.
0: Yeah. So is the definition of a book changing? I mean is a book still a book? Yeah, is it still a book when it's on a digital yeah. reader? And you know, how yeah. how is how that's are you the most about this?
1: Top, that to me is the most exciting part of the business right now is we can reimagine what a book will be. Um, uh, the print book I think is gonna be here for a long, long time. But with all of the color tablets that are out there now, we can imagine and we are producing some books with tremendous extra content in them. We can do interactivity, we can have um, the videos, multimedia is embedded, um, there's social elements that will probably be rolled out from some partners in this year. This year. Um, there are so many things that we can imagine. We can update, we were talking earlier about updating books. We published Game Change a couple of years ago. And Game Change is a great example where Game Change began kind of a national discussion about the last presidential campaign. And this book went on and on and on. And there, was, there were fantastic um, interviews with the authors on Charlie Rose, on NPR. I think in the future, the editor and the authors of books that begin this kind of uh, national dialogue should be, you know we should pick the best of them and they should be appended to the back of the book. Because when I know when I finish a book, if I love the book, I don't want it to end. I then want to know, well, what else has happened since this book was published, and the technology is there for us now to append. You know, on my iPad, I'd love to have the red dot show up on my bookshelf on the book, and to know that there's now a great video that I missed. You know, I don't want to go to the web and search all over the place. There's a lot of there's a lot of content out there that's maybe not curated, um, but I think the editor at at the publishing company and the Authors should mutually agree that was a great interview. This really advanced it. Let's add it into the book. So, everyone who bought the book two months ago is going to get this new content. Um, so, those are the kinds of ideas that I think are right around the corner for us.
0: So, what about digital rights management? I mean, you know, there's this. Interesting problem of you know content and who owns it and who can have it and maybe one person buys yeah. my book and they share it with everyone in the world and you know right. th- th- how do how do we deal with this?
1: That's a complicated issue. Um, one of the challenges that, that I didn't mention earlier is this whole idea of the value of a book mm-hmm. and the issues of piracy and so forth. So digital rights management. Has some benefits, and that it it protects the value of the book because it can't be. You know, file sharing is a little bit more difficult. Anybody can file share any piece of media if they really want to do it. But uh, so it has some benefits, but it also has a lot of drawbacks. Um, you know, you can't move if you bought a book from one platform, you can't move that book to another platform, and so. A number of publishers, including us, are beginning to experiment with either light DRM or watermarking or removing it. And I think everyone's going to continue to, to test to see you know, is it better with DRM or without. And I don't know how the industry will evolve over time, um, but we're going to do the testing and then we'll make some decisions as we get some results.
0: So you know, Amazon is the big elephant in the room, right, when we talk about book publishing. Yeah. I mean, they have changed the entire landscape and uh, how do you think of them? Are they? Do you love them? Um, I mean, are they your best friends? Because they're this incredible distribution channel. You know, where what, what's yeah. the relationship?
1: It's a complex relationship. <laughs> I mean, it's um, you know, there. The, the term frenemy is a great term to uh, kind of capture what business is like today. I mean, we've had. The situation with Amazon, where they're a very large distributor, they're also a publisher. We've had this in the past. I mean, Barnes and Noble was, you know, was what Amazon is today five, ten years ago. They were a publisher then too. So we've sort of been through this, um, you know. But Amazon is a really terrific company. They have achieved amazing success in a very short amount of time. So they are, um, they're a challenge. They're a challenge for us. Um, you know, we we love working with them on some dimensions, and we do. And then there are <laughs> other dimensions where we have to be very careful, um, uh, because uh, because they're so good at whatever they set their mind to do. So, so it's a compli- very complex relationship, and we see that more and more in business today. Um, you know, we also, I mean, Google is another one. We Google is an unbelievable company. They're helping people discover our books through search. Um, they're getting into the ebook business, but we've also had. Problems in uh, you know with in terms of them scanning all of our books. So there's another company, great you know, unbelievable on the one hand, and very complicated on the other hand. So you can you have to be a little schizophrenic I think today to uh, to work with some of these really big successful companies um, and figure out what are your policy positions and try to work with them on the with your left hand and then sometimes argue on with your right hand. So it's complicated, and, and I don't know what else to do your about Facebook
0: it. Is Facebook status with them? It's complicated. Uh, no, no, but uh, <laughs> so it should be. <laughs> so uh, yeah. it's, it's interesting since things are changing so quickly. Do you have a picture of where you anticipate the book publishing industry to be one year down the line, five years, 10 years, 20 years? I mean, do, I'm assuming you're thinking strategically about this with your team. How far in the future do you try to predict and try to work towards?
1: I mean I kind of think 5 years out. Um, which 5 years out is an eternity these days. Um, I do. I mean I, I kind of have my wish in terms of what this business would look like and I you know work with my team to try to set policies that get us closer to that. So I think, you know, in an ideal world from from a HarperCollins perspective, you know, ebooks and print books would be, you know, balanced 50-50, 60-40, I don't know, but they would be complementary. Um, uh, we want bookstores to be around. We think they're very important uh, source of discovery for consumers. They're really important in those communities, so we don't want them to go away. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to set policies uh, in order to ensure or to encourage that that outcome will come to pass. We also would like to, as I, you know, we were talking about, you know, the different kinds of content. If you think about the print world. We have many different print formats. We have hardcovers and then we have tr- what we call trade paperbacks. They're the $13 to $15 trade paperbacks. And then we have NAS market paperbacks, which are low priced. Um, I think in the digital world, we should be trying to develop similar multiple digital formats. Um, I can see us someday bundling the audio with the ebook, where it's synced. So if someone's You know, reading at night and they get in the car or they go to the gym, they can switch on chapter four. They know exactly where they left off and they can listen to chapters four and five while they're driving or at the gym and then they can go right back to chapter six or seven. That technology is there today. So we want to, we're trying to experiment, innovate and create some of these products um, so that consumers have lots of choice. Um, So we're working towards those ends um, but Uh, You know, it's you can't just get there right away.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to open up for questions in a minute, and I want to ask one more question. Is that's a really terrific experiment. In fact, we did a project in my creativity class on the future of the publishing industry, and that was one of the ideas the students came up with. Was this, you know, the idea that you'd go back and forth between media for your book. So I, I know that there's some demand for that. There is demand for that. So what other experiments? I mean, are there uh, what other things can you share with us that are some uh, prototypes you maybe are working on or. Big ideas that would really be breakthrough. Um,
1: well, the I mean, I, the audio we call that audio sync to text. That's one that we're talking to all of our customers about, trying to develop the what we're calling enhanced eBooks. Um, publishing through the Apple uh, bookstore, there's some really terrific things that we can do. We've had some enhanced eBooks where we've sold. You know fifteen sixteen thousand copies of enhanced ebooks um, and so we're really trying to develop those. We're trying to scale up the number of enhanced ebooks. We're doing a lot with promotional pricing um, you know I think it was uh, Tim o'Reilly who had said you know who had said you know the biggest problem with books is they're obscure, and so the more you can allow them to be discovered, the more you're going to sell. We're now doing a lot of promotional pricing and working with having an author blog, and then we're able to lower the price for a limited period of time and offer the consumers who maybe had heard of an author, but hadn't trialed them before, lower the barrier, the sampling barrier. We're getting a lot of success out of that. uh, and then, on the marketing front there 's a tremendous change. Uh, you know Facebook advertising on Facebook to communities who like a certain author is very, very powerful. A lot of the marketing we did in the old days, where the traditional publishing plan was a full paged ad in the New York Times. I mean those days are you know, are kind of dwindling, but the targeted advertising and social media where we can measure the click streams and the open rates we 're getting much more sophisticated about how we spend our money, when to spend it. Um, We now are doing a lot on the pre-order side. So even before books go on sale, the marketing campaigns now start a few months before the book is on sale. There are campaigns dedicated to trying to build pre-orders. If you build the pre-orders high enough, the minute that book goes on sale, you have a tremendous activity in the first week, which drives books up onto the New York Times bestseller list that then has another viral effect after that. So all of these new social media, um, the tools going to the bloggers and blogging networks, um, we're learning quickly a whole new set of uh, skills and channels that I think are going to be very beneficial and this is where I think a big publishing company like HarperCollins that has 12 experiments going on per day is really going to be at the leading edge of, uh, of finding out what's going to work and helping our authors uh, reach their fullest potential with their audiences. So it's really on the product and marketing side that we're, we're spending a lot. Another area, to, one example of trying to help booksellers, independent booksellers is we did a deal, there's a company called Espresso um, which uh, has Basically, printing machines that go into the stores. And we did a deal where we put all of our catalog, our backlist titles in there, because we wanted every HarperCollins book to be available in a small independent bookstore. So even if they don't have room on the shelves, because the store is small. Our books go into the machine. If someone comes in and asks for a HarperCollins book, they can get a cup of coffee and while they wait, they'll have the book printed out in, in five or ten minutes. I mean, That's another innovative idea. I think that you know, we could be moving from very large superstore formats in retail. The size of the retail store will probably shrink, but I don't think we have to give up on the, the variety of uh, selection. And so there's, there's a lot of ideas like that that we think we need to push the envelope, try things and we're getting great results.
0: Terrific, great. I'm sure the audience has some questions. Anyone want to start us off? Yep. Um, As the head of such a large and old company, um, how do you go about um, keeping up to date with what's going on within the company and facilitating collaboration between those who are really creative and those who are technical?
1: Um, so could you just repeat? Th- yes. It? So the question was, um, you know, in, in such a large company, how do we stay on top of um, all the latest developments in technology, and um, also how do we? What was the second part? The second part was uh,
0: facilitating collaboration. Facilitated
1: collaboration between the creative teams and the kind of the business side. I mean, that's that is um, one of our big challenges is to do that. Anytime you get into a very large company sharing best practices is something that we spend a lot of time talking about, and we do it a couple of different ways. One, we try to have people that um, will communicate you know, the, almost like their job is to kind of share those practices. So in marketing, we, we just hired recently a new position into our company in both the U.S. and the U.K. We hired a chief marketing officer. We've never had one in book publishing because we had probably 50 small creative teams between the U.S. and the U.K. and They operated fairly independently. Um, Now we have chief marketing officers in both the U.S. and the U.K. in order to facilitate best practices going back and forth. So that's an organizational change. It's now someone's responsibility to figure out what marketing channels are working and sharing both the successes and the failures. I mean, sharing the failures in some ways is more important than sharing the successes because we don't want to repeat things that don't work. Um, so, so that's one of the things that we're doing on the creative side. And then on the kind of on the business side and the, um, you know, particularly in, in say like IT and some of these, these digital support areas, we have to get them working much more closely with the creative people. Um, and it's a matter of setting up meetings, um, bringing them in uh, kind of closer to authors and decision making on the products on uh, whether it's, it's pricing decisions, format decisions. They need to understand where we're going and what's working so they can help us uh, really build the right infrastructure and the right tools to support where our business is going to be in two, three, and four years. Uh, but it's not easy. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people. Um, I was, I'm out here and one of the reasons I came out besides coming here was to see our team. We have 30 people in San Francisco and um, it's great to come out and to just kind of have informal conversations about you know, what are you hearing, what's working, what's not, and I'm doing the same thing comparing what's working in the UK or in a different division where there's not as much conversation, but it's, it's a challenge. When the business isn't changing or there isn't this kind of rapid transition, it's a lot easier, and now with this rate of change from print to digital, it's really important that we do the best job we can really talking. It comes down to people and communication.
0: Great. yes. Um, How does a company like yours um, compete for talent, um, especially in the technology space? I would imagine like the top engineers who want to work for a high-tech startup versus right. the publishers, how do you compete for?? Yeah. talent? So the, so the question is,
1: how do we compete for top-notch technical talent? It, it, it's a real challenge. I mean, I think we have to find people, and we've been able to do this in a lot of, uh, lot of different functional areas. There are people that are very good in their functional or operational area, but they're also incredibly passionate about books. And so the, the kind of the, the goal for us is to find that intersection you know someone who um, you know has grown up around books, loves books and almost feels like um, you know almost like it's almost like a mission for them to, to, to help you know their skills in order to help a company make a transition. but if someone is just you know, die hard and wants to be you know, on the leading edge of technology, probably HarperCollins is not the right place for them. And so our job is to find the person where there's that intersection and then to bring them in and then to keep them Challenged. Um, so, some people, I mean, I sort of, you know, in this business, one of the things that was interesting to me about the publishing business 15 years ago was that it, it, it did feel like it was ripe for change. And sometimes when an industry is ripe for change, there's a lot of opportunity that opens up for people that want to join that company or get involved in that industry. And we're certainly at that point in time um, where we need a lot of new skills and a lot of new thinking.
0: Can I just slide a question in here? Sure. So you were an engineer by training. I was. And so, how has your engineering training? I mean, we've got our room filled with lots of people who right, are right. engineering students. Why did an engineer go into? This? I mean, like, and how right, are your right. skills being used today?
1: Um, I, you know, I always tried to make decisions in education and in career that. Uh, one, I had to be curious about something, and two, I wanted to do something that opened a door, and and I've just kind of followed that path, and that's that's how I wound up here. Um, how it's helped me? I think you know, I have I have undergraduate degrees in physics and electrical engineering, and I wrote a lot of software. My whole background, I feel like, was really in solving complex problems, and. I tell you, a company, a publishing company, any company is one big complex problem. Um, so I actually I love that part of the, of the job, and I also find um, you know working with creative people as well as business people and operations people, that kind of cross section is fantastic. And so, um, so I think that's really how it helps me. But uh, so it was it's kind of training that I had a long time ago, but. The problem-solving, thinking about different things that we could do, thinking about now the people, because uh, the the more senior you get in an organization, the less you actually do the work. So it's really about asking the right questions and asking how are how are you thinking about solving this problem, than it is of actually doing the problem-solving yourself.
0: Great, really good. So. Yes. So, given the, all the benefits of ebook versus uh, you don't have to worry about inventory or anything like that and it's easy to distribute, why would HarperCollins uh, pressure Amazon to increase prices, which would deter customers from buying ebooks?
1: Right. So, the question is um, without all the costs uh, of a print book and the, and the print publishing process, why did HarperCollins uh, pressure Amazon to increase prices? Um, that's a, that's a that's a good question um, let's see I, I think you know if you go back um a couple of years ago before Apple came into the business, um, Amazon was selling books at nine ninety nine I'm sure you all remember that at the time, we were selling those books to Amazon. We were charging they were paying us about thirteen dollars um, and they were selling them at a three dollar loss and um, they were very successful. It was a great marketing. Campaign for Amazon and for ebook consumers, um, but all of our customers—Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Costco, um, Google—all of the customers that wanted to develop an ebook platform—they kept coming to us and saying, "We want to get into this business, but you know we can't afford to get in the business because the going price is three dollars below our costs," and so. Um, I think um, you know, it wasn't so much about uh, you know trying to raise prices as it was thinking about what's the right business model to allow kind of the right digital ecosystem. That's why I was talking about one of the issues is how do we make sure that we have tremendous choice for consumers? Um, how do we make sure there's a lot of innovation taking place? I mean, innovation tends to take place when there's a lot of competition between different players, and we were... You know, potentially on a path where there was not going to be any competition. Um, so so it really wasn't about trying to raise prices. It was about trying to think about what's the right model that will increase output for consumers and um, give consumers the greatest choice. And that was one of the issues that we had. Yeah. So it's really refreshing to hear how a big company like HarperCollins is, you know, um, Speak up louder. I guess it's refreshing to hear that a big company like HarperCollins is willing to change the format and fit with the times.
0: How willing are you? I mean, we're talking a little bit about business model right now. How willing are you to, uh, to entertain other business models besides just selling books? Because I actually own a kids' ebook library, and I want
1: to talk to you afterwards about that. Yeah, yeah. It's a subscription-based model. So, is that something that you guys have thought about or entertained? Yeah. So the questions about um, are you know is HarperCollins open to other kinds of business models for our books? Um, Yeah, we are. We're definitely interested in different business models. Um, You know, there are you know sometimes we have complications in different kinds of models. So, for example, um, you know, on a subscription model, some of our partners, some of our literary agents are very concerned about a subscription model. And I'm, not, I'm just going to give you one an example of, you know, there, I think there's an opportunity to do subscription models. We'll probably pilot, but some uh, literary agents uh, who represent big authors, they might not want their big author to be in a subscription program because they want they think their author is really the attraction for the subscription the entire subscription offer. So a small author. Um, who might get a few books that are loaned or taken out in that subscription model, um, would get the same compensation as a James Patterson. Yep. And some of the literary agents who represent the really big guys, we don't publish James Patterson, I'm just using him as an example. But you know, they, the, the economics in terms of how they're shared, not so much with the publisher, but with the individual authors. What's the fair compensation structure? For the the uh, authors who are included in that subscription model, no one 's figured that out yet, and so okay, all right so that, so that's one of the issues um, is how do you do that? you know what is it based on, and then you have to get everyone to buy into it if you actually want to get the authors to go into it so some literary agents are very um, you know are, are are less uh, open to experimentation than the publishers are, and we've got to balance everything. But, uh, but we're open. There's a lot of models that are out there, and we're in very early days. Um, we're just hitting the critical mass, really, of, uh, of e-books in terms of the installed base. And so um, I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation as we go forward.
0: Back in the very back. Yes. Uh,
1: yeah. My question is, uh, what advice do you have for someone who wants to publish for the first time? So the question is, what advice do I have for someone who wants to publish for the first time? Um, I would say, you know, you have to. One of the the easiest paths depends on how you want to publish. So that's the first question: is you know, are you what what kind of audience or market or 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 book is it that you're trying to publish? You know, fiction, nonfiction, and you know, so forth. Children's books. That's the first thing. What kind of book is it going to be? Second, you have to do some research to find out who. If you want to be published by a big publishing company, um, who specializes in that particular area? One of the ways to do that is to work with a literary agent. Another way is to go directly to those publishers or the editors that specialize in that area. And cold calling is really tough. You, it, you know, the best thing to do is work your networks. Um, I, I know you have a great network here. Find somebody, a friend of a friend, who's either in the business um, and kind of, kind of help point you in the right direction, and be persistent. That's probably the single biggest thing. Is, you know, there are so many stories of publishers turning down Harry Potter, turning down, you know, Doc Freakonomics, Doctor Seuss. So. <laughs> No one's perfect. It, it really takes, um, if you're trying to go to a big publisher, you have to find that editor that's, that realizes the vision that you have. And that doesn't happen on the first call or the first coffee. You, know, you really need to find someone who's like, yes, I get it, and can help you shape that book uh, into something that's, that is um, unique. So number one, persistence.
0: Can I I chime in with my tricks?
1: Sure.
0: Do you want to know my tricks? Okay. And um, I, the the thing that I always think is you go to the bookstore first and you go and look where you want your book shelved. And you look at all the other books that are there and you say, I want my book to be like this book. And then you look who publishes it and you read the acknowledgments and you see who the acquisition's right. editor is. Because it always says, thanks to my fabulous editor. Right. Okay? Right. And then you reach out to them. Because then means it's like going to the venture capitalist who is investing in the exactly the same thing. I mean the information's all out there, you just right. have to do your homework. The worst thing though is to just blanket it everywhere right. because it's a waste of time and everybody's time.
1: Yeah, Oh, well, that's very good. Or taking a flight with somebody. Yeah, right? exactly. One or the yeah, other yeah, thing. yeah. Get on the plane <laughs> with
0: Mark. So, anyway, another question. Yes, back there. Can you say more about the policies, policy changes um, that you think are going really to help bookstores? And in particular, can you say more about the espresso concept? Is that yours proprietary? Stores, how do you do yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so the question is, uh, can I talk more about the changes in policies that might help um, bricks and mortar booksellers, and to talk a little more about the espresso uh, book machine? Um, so the espresso book machine is—it's uh, it, fine. I think one of the one of the largest owners, I believe, is Xerox. Um, they are not, we don't own them, we're just, we are just put our content in, so we just did a business deal with them. We also have encouraged our sales reps who call on independent bookstores to try to promote it. Um, it's part of what we call at HarperCollins, it's a comprehensive, we call it a comprehensive backlist program. So we're offering promotional dollars um, to independent booksellers. It, we might have 10,000 backlist titles, but um, a normal, independent-sized bookstore in a community might only be able to stock 2,000 of those titles. So we'll go in and say, well, maybe if you carry 2,500 of our titles in-store, we'll give you the other 7,500 in this machine, so you're never out of stock from a HarperCollins backlist title. That's the idea. Um, So we don't own it. We, We just are trying to find different... Business models and ways of encouraging those bookstores to basically to compete in the marketplace today. You know ebooks don't go out of stock. There's no shelf space that's taken up with ebooks. So how does an independent bookseller compete with that? And then online bookstores have everything there. And so this machine uh, seems to me to be a way for them to really compete on the selection and the availability issue. And um, you know, I think some publishers are in it. We're the largest publisher that's in it. You know, I don't know if others will get into it. I think it would be great if they did, but everyone has to make their own decisions. Um, other ways we're trying to help. I mean, we still do. Um, we still do author tours. We're trying to do. A, we still are calling on bookstores, independent bookstores, um, and we're looking at other models. Um, you know, kind of financial models to see. You know, well, There's a concept right now called showrooming, where people go into a bricks and mortar store and uh, they look at the products. is isn't just about books, it's about any retail product. And then they buy the product on their phone from an online site. Um, it's, it's becoming a very, very big issue. There have been stories in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times about, uh, about this issue with Target, for example. Um, I've heard stories in Australia, if you want to buy ski boots in Australia, you have to pay $100 just to try the ski boots on. Um, And then that counts towards the purchase of the ski boots because everybody would go in, try them on, and then order them online. And so, so we're looking at new models of how do you justify, how do you compensate, how do you recognize the value uh, that comes from having a retail partner in a physical space that pays rent, pays employees and experts um, to help introduce your products to customers. So we're, we're kind of toying with that whole idea. And it's a bigger issue than just book publishing. So I can't say that I have any answers right now, but uh, I think it's going to increasingly become an issue for all vendors who sell to both bricks and mortar retailers as well as online or through digital retailers.
0: Yes, in the back, Michael. How do you figure out what's going to be good content, what's going to be a good book? Have you
1: considered crowdsourcing Um, it? So the question is, what do we consider to be good content or a good book, and have we considered crowdsourcing? Um, We, you know... We haven't really done any kind of official crowdsourcing, but you but know, the examples I gave earlier about you know, looking at blogs, I mean, that's a, I guess that's a little bit of um, you know, seeing what's out there and what works. Um, someone who has a good voice or is developing good content, it's not in book form. Um, so what our editors do, part of their job, is to figure out, well, this is someone who has something unique to say, they have a unique story. And then the question is, but can it stand on its own as a book? And that leap is not a trivial leap. Um, you know, you really need to think about the other books that are out there, can we get review coverage, are we gonna be able to get buyers, um, are we gonna get general media to help, uh, you know, is that book gonna last or is it something that's very short? So there's a big gut instinct that comes in um, on the decision in terms of making a judgment on what is quality content. Um, If there was some algorithm we could run against the content, I'd love to know about it. Um, But I haven't seen anything just yet. We do use crowdsourcing from time to time, sometimes around jackets, around packaging. Um, We've done it a few times where we have a book. Take someone, a commercial fiction writer, we might design four or five different jackets um, with a different look, um, maybe a different title or subtitle. And we'll put those out and we'll do A-B testing and we'll figure out you know, which one of these is going to register with, uh, with, different, with different markets. So we'll use it more on the package than the actual entire narrative.
0: I'm curious. I just want to ask a couple of quick questions to the audience since we have this room full of all of these young people. How, what's the, how many of you have bought a book? Like a physical book in the last month. Okay, look at that. Wow. It looks like about very encouraging. half of it. How many of you bought a digital book? Okay, looks like about the same. Okay, cool. I just was yeah. curious, you know, whether we basically, you know, had lost our audience. So yeah. people are still buying That's books. That's great. No, I'm great. very great. happy. Okay, to hear here's that. a question yeah. um, Of all the books
1: that you've published, can you estimate what percentage are both written or written in conjunction with uh-huh. someone uh, um, else? I think uh, the question is what percentage of all the books that we do are ghost written or written with collaborators Um, I I would think it's pretty small I would think it's probably in the I don't know maybe five percent you know I I, uh, whether you're looking at a lot of the fiction I mean fiction is not ghost written at all right so and then children's books there's no there's no ghost writing that goes on there Um, Nonfiction. Uh, you know there are collaborators that work on books for you know people who are very busy. Um, I, you know I don't really know what it would you know what exactly that number would be. Um, but we'll work with an author. Um, we'll work uh, with them to get them the right coach, the right help. Um, you know depending on what the book is. Uh, we just want to get the best content and the best product that's out there. Um, you know, if that if that particular project requires it.
0: So we're going to take one more question. Who is the most fascinating question? You do the most, fast, is the most fascinating question? Zero <laughs> is yours the most fascinating question? Okay, you look, okay. okay. That would be good. Okay.
1: That you uh, suggest the authors uh, what the price of the book should be, uh, what's the title, how to change it. You also suggest what to write about. Uh, so the question is do we suggest what to write about? Um, Yes, our editors. That's sort of the editor's job is um, to help them shape the book. So, what should be included? What should not be included? Sometimes the manuscript is 20, 30 percent too long, and um, you know, a lot of times the editor's job is to say, "Don't, don't add this. Take this out." And sometimes it's this is you're missing this whole part of your story, and so they're recommending. You know, elaborate. You know, really elaborate a lot more on this particular theme or on these issues. So there's a lot of back and forth between the editor and the author in order to make the book as best as we think it can be. Um, so a survey and find out that uh, let's say 70% of, of uh, the people uh, wants to have uh, this kind of character, main character and uh, wants the book to end uh, this way and uh, you know, politicians do things like that. So, right. do you do we haven't gotten to that level of detail. The question is, you know, do we, you know, when it comes to the actual narrative um, or the story arc or character development, do we do any uh, kind of polling or uh, and and that we haven't gone in that that depth of detail. Um, a lot of times you know we also w- when we crowdsource sometimes we, we haven't done it with the entire book because often we hold that book back for like the big media blitz so if you if you kind of let it out there or if you let it out there and where it's only fifty percent complete, you know it's then hard to kind of bottle that back up again and then kind of go out to the market so you'd have to do it in a small closed group um, Uh, In order to kind of get that big marketing bang um, once the book is ready to go to to go to market, Um, but we do, you know, in the in the children's area, some of the teen novels. There's a lot of um, again, it's more instinct, I think, about what you know, what um, how should the narrative develop? What kind of characters are people looking for? Um, There's a lot of collaboration in that space um, because it's it's a really fast growing space, but. some of the the best, you know, literary novelists—they're doing whatever they're going to do, and um, we have a hard enough time getting a, you know, a straight edit out of, uh, you know, with them. So it really depends on the book and the author.
0: Well, this was a fascinating peek inside the publishing industry. Please join me in, and thank you, Brian Murray. Thanks. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.